Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, a number of years ago, and it was quite some time ago, I wish I could actually remember more details, but there was someone in our congregation who was an air traffic controller at Liberty International Airport, uh, which we all know as Newark, and uh, he was a air traffic controller there, and he asked me if I would like to join him one day and kind of take a tour in the air traffic control tower at, at Newark, and uh, in the last probably 20 years or so, maybe 30, they built a fairly tall and large one. And so I was really quite excited uh, to, for that invitation and actually experience and check out what it's like to be in the air traffic control tower of a major airport in the U.S. And so I remember going up through the elevator, remember coming out and just looking out through the glass and seeing the expansiveness of everything that's happening on the ground. Now, of course, probably many of us have been to Newark multiple times. There's multiple terminals. Uh, there's a lot happening. There's planes taxiing. There's planes taking off. There's planes landing. There's planes kind of hovering around in the perimeter for their permission to land. All of that is happening, and it's all completely synced up by the air traffic control tower. On the ground, you're in your little space. Maybe you're waiting in the security line. Maybe you're stuffed into the airplane, about the 20th one to taxi out and take off. Maybe you're kind of hovering out somewhere in the perimeter waiting for your turn to land. But everything is coordinated and organized through the air traffic control tower. What looks like chaos on the ground and whatever is happening in your little slice of reality, whether it's in a security line, seated in a seat in a terminal, whether it's taxing, whether it's being in an airplane, that's all being coordinated by the air traffic control tower. There's guys up there managing, communicating with one another and making sure that it all happens in sync. That reminds me exactly of what we see in Revelation chapter four and five. John has this vision, and he lets us in, not to the air traffic control tower of an airport, but to the traffic control tower of the universe. And so in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, John lets us into the fact that what's happening in our world, what's happening in the lives of people, what seems to be chaos and disrupted and no sense of rhyme or reason is actually under the authority of the one who is in heaven's throne room. Remember, we looked at several of the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and many of them are going through hardship and trouble and difficulty. John himself, the author of Revelation, 
says this in verse 9 of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering, or it's the same word, tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Right out of the chute, John says he's on the island of Patmos. In other words, he's, he's quarantined so that his message of Jesus cannot be further disseminated to the world around him. But he also brings two words together there that we said are kind of odd to bring together. He brings together the word suffering or tribulation, that's how the word's translated, and kingdom. He brings them together. We said those are often two words that don't fit together in the way that we operate in our minds. Like suffering and tribulation do not go together with kingdom. If somebody is ruling and reigning, then there shouldn't be suffering and hardship and tribulation. And if somebody has suffering, hardship, and tribulation, that usually means somebody is not ruling. John actually brings them together. And the whole point of Revelation is this. Yes, even though there's suffering and hardship and tribulation, that is still consistent with the fact that someone in heaven is ruling and reigning. Interestingly enough, the word tribulation is mentioned five times in the book of Revelation, and four of them happen in Revelation 1 through 3. And so these people that John is writing to in the churches are experiencing difficulty, they're experiencing trouble, tribulation, they're experiencing suffering in a pretty significant degree. And John is saying that all of the rest that's going to unfold in Revelation 6 and following is not out of control, even though it may seem to be out of control. It's not going off the rails, even though it may seem to be derailed. Instead, it's under the authority of the one who is in the throne room of heaven. And so Revelation 4 and 5 are in one sense this hinge from the first three chapters to the rest of how the book is going to unfold. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 4 this morning that you heard Walt read earlier. And we're going to look at three points about heaven's throne room, about what's happening in the control tower of the universe. And I'm going to ask for your participation in this so that we kind of remember the points. First thing we're going to look at is this, a door that's standing open. And so when I say a door that's standing, you can respond with open. So first thing we're going to look at is a door that's standing. Okay. Awesome. Great job. You guys are right on top of it. We get that from verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing okay. open, awesome, in heaven. And the voice I had heard, I have first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. Listen, friends, the first thing that just jars me here is this. John is welcomed up, and the door that he sees is not closed. It's standing. The door to heaven is standing. It can often feel closed. Maybe some of you in this room feel that way. But instead... The door of heaven is not closed. It's open. There's connection between heaven and earth. And T. Wright says this, heaven, God's sphere of reality, is right here close beside us. 
intersecting with our ordinary reality. It's not so much like a door opening high up in the sky far away. It is more like a door opening right in front of us where before we could only see this room, this field, this street. Suddenly, there's an opening leading into a different world and an invitation to come up and see what's going on. So many times, at least in my mind, earth feels disconnected from heaven. And maybe sometimes to you, the door feels closed. But the point that John makes first, right out of the chute in verse 1, is the door is not closed. The door is standing open. Yeah. Maybe you've prayed a prayer request to the God of the universe hundreds of times. And it feels like the door's closed. But it's open. Maybe this is the first Christmas where you're going to go through the sadness of not having a loved one with you. And the door feels closed. Remember interacting with someone in our congregation many years ago. She's still part of our congregation. But I remember the Christmas where her son took his own life. Friends, that happens anytime. You feel like the door is closed, but it's standing open. There's horrific events happening in our world, events that seem out of control. We can often ask the question, how is it that God can still be in control and all of this can happen? But I can promise you, the door to heaven is standing open. Yeah. And the door is not high in the sky somewhere. Instead, heaven is connected to earth. The door between heaven and earth is not bolted shut. It's open. Heaven is not detached from earth. God knows exactly what you are facing. And his presence is with you. Because the door between heaven and earth is open, you are never in a position of being hopeless. You are never abandoned by God. You're never cut off from him. You're never disconnected from him. But instead, the door is standing open. God hears your prayers. God cares about your pain. God's love is toward you. You are not on your own. The door between heaven and earth is standing open. It's the first thing that John wants us to know. And friends, because that door is open... There's always hope. There's always a certainty that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And some of you simply need to hear that this morning. A door is standing open. Second thing, a throne that's occupied. A throne that's occupied. So first, a door standing. And secondly, a throne that's Awesome, man, we're doing great. Uh, verses two and three. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Aren't you glad that when it comes to who's sitting on the throne, there's kind of like only two options there's either no one or there's someone. When John looks at the throne, there's someone seated on it. In other words, the throne of heaven is occupied, friends. And the one who sat there, 
had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. The word throne appears 61 times in your New Testament. 41, 41, in other words, 66% of those 61 times that it appears in the New Testament, 41 of those times it occurs in the book of Revelation itself. 17 times, 17 times it's mentioned in Revelation 4 and 5. 21 times from chapter 6 through 22. John wants us to be clear. The door is standing open and the throne is occupied. The God of the universe is seated on the throne. Nancy Guthrie says this, God sits on the throne of the universe, radiating from his being the splendor of his holiness, the beauty of his character, the magnificence of his mercy, the brilliance of his plans and purposes, and the majesty of his sovereign grace. It mentions jasper. It mentions ruby or another precious stone, depending on your translation. A couple things relate to that. Number one, in ancient times, for a king to have different kinds of precious stones often was a signal of sort of their international influence. Often in your own little kingdom, you weren't necessarily able to accumulate too many precious stones. So having precious stones indicates an expansiveness of influence, an expansiveness of power and glory and splendor. And so there's certainly something happening with that. And just the absolute beauty of these stones and the preciousness of them, it symbolizes the beauty and wonder of God. Just a little note there. You know, Amy introduced year-end giving earlier on. Now, here's a deal with year-end giving, and we really encourage the congregation at Southridge to give generously. And we try to model that by giving generously outside of our doors, as she mentioned. But here's the deal, friends. God is not in poverty. We don't ask for you to give because God is poor. God is rich. God is wealthy. God has everything he needs, but he invites us to participate in him and with him and what he is doing. He invites us to participate with him as an act of worship. And so giving is somehow not alleviating God's need. God is fine. God's doing great. God has all of the riches of the universe. He does not need one penny of your money or mine. But we give out of worship. We get out of delight. We get out of joy of participating in what God is doing in this world. And that leads us to kind of like the second aspect of these precious stones. Jasper later on is mentioned in Revelation chapter 21 twice. And it's the stone that's first mentioned later in the book of Revelation connected especially to the glory of God. It's also at the head of the list of the 12 foundation stones for the end time city. In other words, the, the God's new creation. And so Jasper is listed as the first stone that's part of the foundation of God's new creation. 
It's kind of the metaphorical way of saying that, yes, these stones represent the beauty and splendor and goodness and wonder of God, but they also anticipate the beauty of the new creation, of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, the new creation that God is going to bring about. And that's emphasized by the next phrase, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. If you think back into the Old Testament, the rainbow at Noah's time, it sort of was a picture of, yes, God's judgment, God's cleansing of the earth, but also his faithfulness. And the rainbow was shown at the moment that the earth began to begin to be revived from the flood. Kind of symboled the beginning of the new creation back after Noah, the earth coming to life again. And so the rainbow is this idea of of God's faithfulness, his judgment on that which is evil, but also that giving birth to new life. Friends, listen, there's someone seated on the throne. If you remember, uh, back a number of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that this whole vision that John saw he references in Revelation chapter 1 happens on the Lord's Day. In other words, the first day of the week when Jesus is raised from the dead. And so this is the beginning of a new creation. The throne room in heaven is a picture of God's faithfulness to accomplish his purposes. And here's what I want to say to you, friends. Your story is not done at this moment. God finishes his stories well. God is faithful to his character. God is faithful to the end of the story that he has in mind. If you put your finger in any chapter of Revelation, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, there's a lot of chapters in there. And it looks like chaos. It's nuts. And it looks like evil is winning. But God says, make no mistake about it. Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 are coming. God is not finished with the story. And what I want to remind you of is this. God isn't finished with your story either. I don't know what chapter you're in. Maybe you're chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. There's a lot of chapters there. And I don't know what chapter you're in of your story. But what I do know is this, that whatever chapter of your story you're in, God's not done. God completes his stories. God is faithful. God is true. God says that if you're a follower of his, if you trust in him, that you will enter his new creation, that he will completely fulfill his purposes in your life. The throne room, the throne is completely occupied. Let's do that again. Let's start from the beginning. A door standing open. Awesome. A throne completely awesome. The last thing, there's beings who are fully worshiping. There's beings who are fully worshiping. Beings who fully worship. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Most likely, it seems like the uh, elders are probably some kind of angelic beings. Uh, Different 
perspectives of why there's 24, most likely that's referencing the fact that in the Old Testament there were 12 tribes of Israel through which God was bringing about his plan of redemption in the Old Testament leading up to the birth of Jesus. Coming out of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, there's 12 apostles. And so it kind of appears that the 24 elders are representative of the fact of all of God's redeemed people for all of time. The whole community of people belonging to God that he himself has redeemed and through which he is accomplishing his purposes. They are seated there. They're dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their heads. They are there to worship. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. References there to the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder kind of harken back to Mount Sinai when God descends and gives his law. The fact that he is in control, he's powerful. His righteousness is pouring forth on Mount Sinai. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the ancient times, uh, water or the sea would often be known as the abyss, the place of disruption, the place of ultimate chaos. It often would even personify evil and things being out of control. Instead of the disruption and chaos and things out of control in the throne room of heaven, the sea is like glass. In other words, God is fully in control of all that's disruptive, all that seems to be chaotic, all that seems to come from the abyss or the place of evil, all of that is absolutely under control in God's throne room. Could be references there as well to the Red Sea. We're going to find that later on, through which God brought about the redemption and restoration of his people in the Old Testament. It's a sea of glass. In the center around the throne, verse 5, were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes. Notice that twice we're told they're covered with eyes, once in verse uh, 6 as well as once in verse 8. They're covered with eyes, meaning they sort of represent the omniscience of God. That God is not somehow acting in ignorance. That God is fully, remember the door is standing open. God is fully seeing what's happening on planet earth. God is not unaware. God is not detached. God is fully engaged, fully omniscient, fully all-knowing about what is happening on planet earth. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. And once again, here's this phrase, and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Kind of also references some of the visions in both Isaiah and Ezekiel, where there's cherubim and seraphim that have angelic beings with wings. Most likely what seems to be happening here is the lion is seen as sort of the the king of the animal world, the most powerful of the wild, untamable animals. The ox is sort of a picture of uh, the animal world that's been brought under kind of control by human beings. Oxen worked the ground. They plowed the ground. 
And so oxen seems to represent sort of the animal world that's sort of maybe even been subjected to human training. The third had the face like a human being. The flying eagle represents the king of all of the birds, the most powerful of the birds. And so what John seems to be doing in representing both the 24 elders as well as the four living creatures, and there's four of them kind of suggesting the north, south, east, and west, the all-encompassing nature of every direction, all of God's creation. And so the 24 elders represent all of God's redeemed humanity. For all time, his community of people who have embraced and accepted him, who fall under the umbrella of his redemption. All of the created world symbolized by the ox, the eagle, the lion, even the face, the being with the uh, human face. It's all of the created world. All of that, friends, all of it is giving God praise. It's giving God praise. Since day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In ancient times, they would often use sometimes double up or sometimes triple up in order to bring emphasis, in order to focus on that which is truly solid and important. So it's not just one holy. It's not just two holies. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. Friends, these are words of just absolute 100% all-encompassing praise of God. You are here this morning. You're alive at God's bidding for no other reason. You have breath in your lungs at this very moment because God created you. I love it when he says, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. That word is translated multiple times in the rest of New Testament as deserving. In other words, you are deserving our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. The four living creatures representing all of creation. The 24 elders representing all of God's redeemed people. They surround the throne and they worship because God is worthy and he's deserving of their worship. My question is this. He's deserving of your worship. Is he receiving it? Maybe I can ask you the question in another way. The one on the throne 
in heaven's throne room is deserving and worthy of worship and praise and honor. And that person on that throne is going to be there 100 years from now. It's going to be there 10,000 years from now. It's going to be there a million years from now. Question, is whatever or whoever that's on the throne of your life, will that whoever or whatever still be there in 100 years? Is, is what's on the throne of your life right now, is what, whatever your life is most encircled around, whatever your life is most drawn toward, whatever is kind of at the epicenter of your life, whatever you give the most praise and honor to, in terms of your Time, your devotion, your thoughts, what makes you tick, what makes you alive, will that be there a hundred years from now? Or is what's on the throne of your life things that are going to pass away? Is Jesus receiving from you? the worship that he's worthy of and the worship that he deserves. And when I say that he's worthy of a worship, that doesn't mean that we sit in church for 24 hours a day and sing. It's not what worship is. Worship is all about what you ultimately value. Worship is all about what you find to be beautiful. Worship is all around what you find to be good, what you find to be utmost in your life. And so the question is, there's no argument as to whether the God of the universe is deserving of your worship. The only question is, are you giving him the worship that he's deserving of? And he's not doing that because he's selfish. He's actually doing that because for you to be the most human being that God created you to be means that your life needs to be centered around the one who's on the throne. In fact, I would say, if Jesus is not on the throne, the more inhuman you'll actually be. To worship the right thing, to worship God, is the most human thing that you can do. It's what you're designed to do. There's a door, get ready here, there's a door that's standing. Open. There's a throne that's completely. And there's beings that are fully. Yeah, worshiping. And I ask you to stand and our team is going to come out. We're going to sing this song, Holy, Holy, Holy. And certainly as we sing, we worship. But may it not just be a worship song. May the tone of our life, may the trajectory of who we are, may the attitudes or dispositions, may our whole beings be ones that are oriented toward the worship of God at the center. Because 
the God who's on the throne today will be so a million years from now as well. And so let's worship that God.
God, may we be among the beings who worship you. May we be among the beings who have you at the center. Thank you that the throne of heaven is occupied. Thank you that you are not detached, but the door of heaven is standing open. May we live by faith, even though the darkness hides you. May we know that the throne is occupied. We thank you that you ultimately showed that in Jesus who came here to be born, to die, who ascended to heaven and will one day return. And in whose name we pray and everyone who agreed said, amen, amen. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Remember the door of heaven is standing awesome. Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. God bless and have a wonderful day.